You are listening to Afternoon Tea Radio with your favorite host, Maria Jordan. And your boy, Karis Jordan. And we are sipping tea while spilling tea. What's up, family? Thank you for listening to Afternoon Tea Radio with your favorite host, Maria Jordan. My co-host had an event today, so he won't be able to make it. But, of course, we miss Karis Jordan, your boy. Uh, But he will be back next week. So today... I'm excited because we're sipping tea while spilling tea with Dr. Sheena Mason. I'm excited to talk to her today. She has a interesting perspective on racism, on what we need to do as a people. But before we get into that, let's talk about today's tea. So I am sure all of our listeners are aware that Dr. Dre is currently trending on social media because he has been ordered to pay to pay. <laughs> monthly, monthly starting August 1st uh, to his ex-wife, Nicole Young, for spousal uh, support until she remarries or enters into a new domestic partnership or she dies. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that is um, a buck. <laughs> to say the least, it is definitely a buck. Uh, it's a temporary order. It totals about three million, roughly a year. Now, this is a uh, again, it's a temporary order. The Los Angeles Superior Court judge also ordered Dre to keep paying for Nicole's health insurance. So, Ms. Young filed a divorce in June of 2020 after 24 years of marriage, and they currently share two adult children. So Nicole admitted um, that they did sign a prenup before they got married, but she said that he tore it up several years after they got married. And Dre, of course, wants the agreement to be enforced. Um, Nicole, um, they they haven't been... They've been playing dirty, y'all, in the courtroom. Nicole subpoenaed three alleged mistresses, Jillian Spear, Crystal Sierra, and Kelly Anderson. Um, they, The three girls attempted to hire a lawyer to, like, fight the request, but the judge sided with Nicole. And basically, they um, had to... <sighs> spill all the beans on Dre. And Dre accused Nicole from of stealing money um, from his music company. So it was it has been an ugly court case of course as it you would imagine. But Dr. Dre just to get some numbers out there makes roughly 30 million dollars a year and he's going to be paying the mother of his children roughly 3 million if everything, you know, is finalized. So Of course, we had to bring it to our social media uh, poll and get our listeners talking. And I'm surprised because a lot of our male listeners, um, when I asked if she should be getting anything, they feel like she should get zero dollars. Not all of them, but a lot of them. A lot of our listeners feel that she should get zero dollars. Um, I've heard a couple of people say max 10K and a lot of women saying that what she's getting is fair. So I would love to hear um, you guys perspective on what exactly is fair, because don't get me wrong. So a lot of the argument is, is that doctor she did not contribute to his businesses. And I beg to differ. A spouse of 24 years definitely 
played a role, maybe not a creative role, but she definitely supported this man mentally, emotional, raised, emotionally raised the children. She had to play a part on his mental to be with him for 24 years to help him to be able to comfortably create the way he's been creating and doing the things you like to say that she had no input is just ludicrous to me. So, I mean, guys, please chime in. You can all call in at 404-603-8770 with your opinions, or you can continue on our social media poll, um, Afternoon Tea Radio Atlanta and Afternoon Tea Radio on uh, Facebook. But yeah, it's been it's been an interesting conversation. Uh, but I mean, we'll we'll continue the conversation on our social media platforms. That's today's tea. He will be shooting out that almost 300,000 a month. Um, yeah, Nicole, she probably won't be getting married. Again, <laughs> so she could keep her coin, but who knows? But nonetheless, I mean, I don't, I, I can't say what dollar amount specifically is deserved. I can't go into all that, but I will say something is definitely deserved. You're not with someone for 24 years supporting them, and then all of a sudden, because of whatever reason you guys break up, it, it, it's not. It's supposed to be all right. Go ahead and start your life over. Nah, that's not how that go. Um, but yeah, that's my opinion. Please share yours. All right, so we're gonna get into the good stuff. We have Dr. Sheena Mason um in the studio today. Are you on the line, love? I am. Hi, Hi. Maria. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm so well. I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm smiling over your discourse on Dr. Dre and Nicole. Listen, do you have something you want to share? You got an opinion on this? Girl, chime Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yes, I agree with you. I think that any any spouse is supporting, um, it's a mutually supportive situation, right? Absolutely. Or at least, I guess, in the ideal world, that's what it should be. And so I think that absolutely she's done her part and um, deserves some type of payment. Yeah, y'all need to stop playing. Like, and, 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 and so that we're clear, I would feel the same way about Oprah and Stedman. You know what I mean? Like, if it was reverse roles, I was, and she was the breadwinner and he was supporting in other ways, I would feel the same way. Again, I'm not saying the exact dollar amount, but this nada, zero, she don't deserve nothing, that's just ridiculous. And it is such, it's so interesting to me to see people get on that conversation and even on that opinion of that when, you know, you talking support black women and black lives matter. But then when it comes to something so trivial, when he makes his, I mean, come on, think of how much he makes on a monthly basis. You think of that and it's like, oh no, leave her out to dry. Like that's ridiculous to me. Like y'all a mess. (laughs) But anyway, hey, girl, hey. <laughs> so tell us, tell us, Dr. Mason, or you said you want me to call you Sheena. I, I just feel like you got, you deserve a title, girl. <laughs> Thank you. I yeah, I, it, it, still, it still makes me smile hearing it, so I, I won't complain. <laughs> okay, yes, as you should. You, you've done the work, so you deserve to smile about it. So where are you originally from? So I'm originally from upstate New York, very small town, like population under 2,000. Oh, wow. 
Wow, that's tiny. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was it like growing up in a small town? Well, um, two of my biological brothers died under suspicious circumstances at the hands of my biological parents. And as a result of that, the state of New York took me away from my parents um, at birth. And I was placed into the foster care system. By the time I was one, I was adopted. However, my adoptive parents actually severely abused and neglected me. So the town I lived in was, I guess you could say, affluent enough, but I grew up in a trailer park, and um, I also had the, the traumatic experience of having to overcome the child abuse that I was facing. Um, ultimately, I ended up moving out of that house on my 16th birthday because at that point in my life, it was either, you know, I was very suicidal. Um, If I were to stay there, I worried that my adoptive mother was going to literally murder me or I was going to hurt myself. So I chose homelessness at 16. Yeah, girl. And I ended up um, having to drop out of high school, actually, my senior year of high school, because I had bigger fish to fry. So, yeah, my my upbringing was not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. But the thing that really saved me and helped sustain me was my access to books and um, what I would consider to be a fairly decent education. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things really saved me because it helped me. It helped me believe that there was more to life than the struggle that I was enduring. Wow. Wow. Mm. Thank God for your testimony. Um, And I'm so happy to be able to speak with you and call you doctor under those circumstances. Um, Was there anyone who support was a support, a supporter for you growing up at all? Did you have anyone that you can rely on and who supported you as a person? Um, I had two people who had an impact on me, but it was a very short, it was a long-term impact, but their presence in my life was short. So my second grade teacher, Miss Morris, I, I, I just remember one day leaving school, she got down eye level, put her hands on my shoulders and looked me in my eyes. And I don't remember what she said or if she said anything, but it was the feeling in that moment that made me feel like I was seen, that made me feel, I felt like she saw what I was going through. And then at the same time, CPS was was involved and, you know, it's a broken system, so they did absolutely nothing to help me. But wow. I suspected as an adult that Miss Morris was the person who called CPS. Mm-hmm. Um, so that had an impact on me. And then when I did have to drop out of high school, the social worker at my school uh, the day I signed myself out, I'll, rem- I'll always remember my honors English teacher and my honors economics teachers were saying how I was going to become a statistic, basically. And I understood their concern, certainly, even in hindsight. But my social worker looked at me and said, Sheena's going to finish high school. It's just a matter of time. And it was wow. her... It was her belief in me. It was her. She was the one who actually helped me to move out. Um, She trusted that I wasn't going to hurt myself over a weekend. and was like, let me do some research. 
and she came back and told me, hey, based on the law in New York, when you turn 16, you can move out without their consent. This is something that I can help you do, yada, yada, yada. And so it was really... Dr. Mason? Ooh. Oh, we just missed her. That's all right. She'll call back in. Wow, what a story, guys. And and we're going to hear about... um, a little bit how her upbringing and her life and where she is today. Um, again, we're talking with Dr. Sheena Mason. Um, she's back on the line now. Um, Dr. Sheena. I'm so sorry. That's all right, girl. It happens. It happens. Live. It happens. So, wow, that is, woo, that is so much. So I'm glad that there was someone who believed in you and saw more than you probably saw in yourself um, at such a young age. That's so important. And that's why I drive the, the, the thought that community is so important. And you never know how you, that might not be your child, but how we all um, can put into one another because you never know what people are going through at home. And, you know, as a as a person, you want to support people. You just never know. Um, were you a master of disguise back then? Was I a master of disguise? Meaning be, hiding your what was happening and put, you know, well, we, in, in school and stuff and trying to keep a certain face. Uh, were you able to kind of did people know what you were going through? No, they definitely didn't, because one thing that abusers tend to do is threaten the person they're abusing if they were to share the information. So Mm. I really believed my adoptive mother that she would do more harm to me. Indeed, I really believed that she would kill me um, if I were to share the abuse that I was going through. So I, I definitely kept it under wraps as best I could. I used the excuses she gave me when I had broken bones, oh. bruises. Um, I, I, I fell off. We could pull up on her. You want to pull up on her? <laughs> we could do this together, girl. I'm down. I'm that friend. I'm that friend. I'm down for the cause. I am so sorry. Oh, Listen, and it's so sad. It, oh, my God. It, it was It was not fun, and do I wish I hadn't Do I Do I wish that on any person, especially children? Absolutely not, but Ultimately, those traumas helped me become the beautiful person that I am now. So I'm I'm thankful and grateful for the the experiences and the lessons that I've learned through that. Um, and yeah, I my my heart and deepest empathy really goes out to anyone who is living in disguise, as you so eloquently put it. Because um, I so wanted to tell people the truth, you know, yeah. but I just used. The, um, the excuses that she gave me, I fell off my bike. I, yeah. One excuse she gave me was I ran into the dryer door. I was doing laundry, and the door was open, and I ran into it. Like, but you, you would think people would see through that those kinds of um, excuses. But I think people I, don't want to admit to monster, that there's monsters out here. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think that it's almost like the ignorance is bliss, but we have to get out of that. We have to create safe spaces for broken systems, especially when children is involved. 
and um, we have to deep digger. I mean, excuse me, dig deeper um, to 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 make sure that our children are safe. Like this is, and it happens. It still happens. It still happens in the foster care system and in people's homes. Like it's it's a sad thing, and we just gotta do better at become being a support system um, for these children. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. But I am so happy that the woman you've become um, through all of the trial and tribulations. Um, So I congratulate you on that. That's enough alone to be able to survive that um, is enough enough alone for praise. In my Thank opinion. you so much. Yeah. Thank you. So tell me, when did you first learn about racism? What was your experience there? Ah, so this also goes back to my childhood. Um, I I want to say the first time I learned about both race and racism was when I was about seven or eight years old, and my adoptive mother told me that my adoptive father's family didn't like me because I'm black. And she's she immigrated from Panama, so by American definition, she would be considered brown. Uh, my adoptive father, however, was racialized as white, and she really used that as the used the knowledge of racism as a weapon against me wow. because his family wasn't actually racist, but she didn't want me to have a relationship with them because she feared being found out. Mm. So that was my first time looking at myself and feeling like I was definitely different and that people didn't like me because of that difference. And then the next time was a couple years later, my brother, who's racialized as black, was going through the trailer park and got shot at by a local skinhead and came home screaming at the top of his lungs, just like completely terrified. I'll always remember the sound of his scream. We're like, what happened? And come to find out that indeed he got, he did get shot at the police found the gun. And essentially the perpetrator was sent back to live with his father in Tennessee, like some other state. Uh, But that was a sort of, traumatic moment that I'll always remember. And then at various other times in my life, you know, when I was 13, sitting on the school bus and somebody called me pubic hair um, incessantly every day on the school bus and then one day assaulted me and hocked a loogie out the bus window and I was off of the bus and her spit landed in my hair. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes, I have been I have experienced all forms of just blatant, explicit, violent racism. Jeez, Louise. So, so what did, what made you want to study the history, like specifically racism? And let's talk about your perspective on racism and how it might like differ. Like, what's your perspective? Yeah, so... I think the thing that motivates me even still to really study deeply racism, ideas about anti-racism and so far, really does go back to the traumas that I experienced as a child and, and then as a young adult. The idea that 
there are injustices in the world that are out of people's control for the most part. That has always uh, resonated with me as a victim of child abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and because I attribute really the trajectory of my life to my ac- access to books, education, all of that, I did I do tend to look at education particularly as a, a source of liberation because it was for myself. And so when I started figuring out what do I want to study, it was from this sort of mindset and perspective that led me toward African-American literature primarily because I viewed the literature itself as working against the sort of forces that I saw myself working against, that I saw other people working against. And I viewed the literature as a a form of activism, and I viewed my study of the literature as a form of activism, and then my teaching and writing about the literature as a form of activism. Mm -hmm. And it is through my extensive study of not just African-American literature, but I also specialize in Caribbean and American literature, broadly speaking, that I came to see that the production of race across centuries, we're talking, um, has always been nefarious and has always meant that the racialization of people across time, across space, has led to the marking out of groups as fit for subjugation and oppression and the marking out of other groups as fit for uh, more access, unequal access to power. So you're you're saying this is bigger than just, so this is systematic for, since before we, before time, like you think this is, explain that a little deeper for me, for those like me who needs a better explanation. (laughs) 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 So the term, the term race and what we think of as being race hasn't always meant black, white, Asian, indigenous mm-hmm. people. It hasn't always meant that. It once upon a time, going back to let's say the 1300s, 1400s in Europe, the the term really re- was a reference of like family. It was a caste system in a way. It was about nationality. It wasn't about how we think of race in America now. Hmm. And So the idea of race started to be reconstructed after those same Europeans started traveling and having more interactions, increased interactions with people who didn't look the same as them. Mm. So when you study the literature, you begin to see how these Europeans were talking about other people as being black, as being brown, as being yellow, as being red, and theorizing what does, what does, blackness mean? Let's focus on blackness. What does blackness mean? And then focusing on what blackness meant, then the the inverse of that is like they're writing what whiteness means as well. And mm. from that time, before America was um, officially America, they were talking about, about and creating race and blackness particularly as being something that was satanic, as being indicative of um, inadequate health, essentially, mm. like uh, that uh, 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 a person with darker skin 
their liver doesn't function correctly, and so their body holds more bile. So they're essentially what? sicker, and it manifests itself. If you know what bile is, then you know that that's a fancy way of saying, you know, yeah, poop, right? So, yeah. so it's like that that manifests in in skin color somehow. What? So you see all all people from all professions from all European countries really trying to figure out what is what does. The, these differences and how people look, what does it mean? Yeah. And the language they used was race and then what we think of race, which is now rooted in whiteness and blackness, I would say primarily, but also includes Asian, indigenous, and yeah. um, so on. Oh, that's interesting. So it was almost like, because I don't understand it, which is exactly how it is now, I don't understand it and I need to explain it. And I'm going to explain it from my perspective instead of figuring out what the explanation is from the people who are actually it is. <laughs> so that's interesting. Okay. So how does that translate now? Like now that we are smarter, we have more um, knowledge, we've done more research and we are aware that that makes zero sense. Um, where are we now? Why are we still dealing with the thing we deal with now? Um, after, mm-hmm. With with all the the knowledge that we have, in your opinion? Yeah. So the the interesting thing is, for me anyway, is that racism created race, which is clear again in the historical literature, but. Nowadays, we, we tend to talk about race and think about race as if race creates racism. But really, it's the inverse. Mm. So if racism creates race, because, you know, once upon a time, they tried to argue that race was something of nature, that is biological. This is considered to be a naturalist philosophy of race. But that has long been disproven, Right. Even by the time the 1900s comes along, science has disproven that race is biological. And so in that way, although science disproved race, we then, in in the United States, in the context of this country, we've then come to start thinking about race as, as what's called a social construction, which is a second philosophy of race. But ironically, even in our talking about race, as a social construction, we use language and we view it as being of nature, which is very ironic to me as a scholar of this um, of this topic. Particularly, it's ironic to me because then the fight against racism, for all intents and purposes, is we are unintentionally upholding racism by continuing to promote race ideology because as i said racism promotes race Hmm. so all all of the ways in which we talk about race it's supposedly expansive we view blackness as being almost like incorporating everything in anything under the sun we talk about it as not being some inherently negative those were all efforts to reconstruct race which is another philosophical position however Race has been under reconstruction for centuries and centuries and centuries before the United States was made, as I mentioned earlier. 
And to think that we can ever reconstruct race that is created by racism is a misstep. And I think that that's why we still find ourselves so entrenched in systemic racism and in the quagmire of figuring out how do we actually have more generative conversations about this topic when people are coming to it from the positions of defensiveness um, and positions of denial and that sort of thing. So my argument is that we have to expand our understanding of different philosophies of race, because if we do that, if we recognize that race is relative, race does not mean the same thing in other contexts, just as racism does not mean the same thing in other contexts. Uh, if we recognize that in the U.S., and we talk about the alternative philosophies of race that have so far been kept under the rug, I think because it disrupts the status quo and the people that actually have uh, consistent power and access to power in this country don't want it to come out. I think if we're able to do that and complicate the discussion and talk about skepticism, eliminativism, then we will get a lot further in the fight against racism. Not in a utopic way of like we can, there will be 0% racist in the country, but in a way that statistically racist people or people with racist ideas, uh, racist policies, those things will be the minority. So let me ask you this. So this is, uh, I got a couple of questions. So first, I know that race would, if, if race doesn't exist and it's kind of in our heads and it's different you know what makes why are we different like whether it's pigment you mentioned that there was a lot of different uh, philosophies on why we're different why do you think that is like why is there black white like why why are we different um i think we look different for reasons that aren't even relevant to the discourse of race and racism. Because when we, when we look at the continent of Africa and we look at people in Kenya compared to people in Ghana, for example, mm-hmm. scientists have shown that Africans on the continent of Africa are more genetically different from each other and have more genetic variations compared to each other than compared to anyone else in the world. Mm-hmm. So... So to look at a person's phenotype, which is the same as saying to look at a person's body and assert that in, and to, to interpret physical differences as signifying other more meaningful differences is a misstep. And it's something that in America we've been really, I think, programmed to think. We've been programmed to keep thinking along these racial or what I call racist lines. Because ultimately, the more we focus on our physical differences, the less we're focusing on actual differences. And one of the problems with racial or what I call race ideology is the fact that it washes over actual differences and privileges physical differences. And there's a difference. So what Not is the all actual black people difference? think alike. So right? what it, Not what, all black people have the same language, yeah. same culture, nationality, ethnicity, etc. And the same is true for every other racial category. And so the ironic thing is while we're in America, while we're preaching about diversity, we are actually ignoring <laughs> 
what makes us diverse, which is not how we look, but it's all the other things that I was just mentioning. So you mean and so, in regards to how we think is what is actual the act. So what is the difference? If it's not a physical difference, what would you say is the difference? Between human beings? Yes. Like what? Yeah, I think I think the differences are plenty. You know, it's differences in I think there are regional differences. I think there are national differences. I think that in in some ways ethnicity connects to our discussion of nation. Uh, but even in the the context of the United States, a, an African American person in Houston, Texas, is going to be pretty different from an African American in New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're going to be different. Their fashion is going to be different. Their language is going to be different. I mean, they're still going to be speaking English, of course. But, yeah. But the 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 twang is going to be different. Uh, and then. When you look at the same population, let's say all Houstonians um, and African-Americans in, in Houston, we would come to recognize that even though they are of the same region, they are still not the same. Mm-hmm. And so there's a dangerous and ironic way that race ideology and the concept of race continues to wash over and mask our actual differences, which is problematic because uh, because it not just it doesn't just wash over our differences; it washes over our similarities, which yeah. I think is also the more important thing. And it and it and it makes it seem as if the similarities of our bodies, how we look, automatically equates to similarities and cultures and ethnicities and all of the things I've named. The, the similarities and how we think and that's just that's just not the case like everyone is different and we also have similarities but if we talk along race lines or racist lines then it's that much harder for people to see it that's why you have some people in response to black lives matter because you have race in the equation they can't understand how all lives matter is not actually contradicting or opposing the view that black lives matter. They, for those people, they hear black lives matter, only black lives matter. So they don't ask you this. What would you say is the direction we need to go? Like in lame terms, like, so if we're taking away, cause to me, I understand that, but I do still feel like the same way it separates in some cases, it also unites in others. So what would you say is the proper way to move forward, in your opinion, um, if we take away race in the conversation of like Black Lives Matter or whatever it is? How do we fix the problem without identifying who is being targeted? Yeah, so so I'm glad you asked that question because I want to be absolutely crystal clear that. I think that racelessness should be the the ultimate goal, but how we get there requires us to talk about racism. And when we're talking about race, we're misdirecting the conversation away from the problem, which is racism, because racism creates race. 
and we're focusing on the wrong thing, which is also why I think the problem continues to persist in the ways that it does. It's more comfortable, actually, for people to talk about race, but as soon as we start talking about racism, oh, like, people are pumping the brakes. So I think we need to redirect our dialogue, our discourse, towards the actual problem, which is racism, and talk about racism in terms of racism, not in terms of race. So that's step one. So in that way, in putting race, I guess, to the side or packaging it with direct dialogue about the problem, which is racism, this will force Americans to have a fuller reckoning with the problem, which is racism. And I think the ultimate result of that would be a recognition that race is a farce and that race, the persistence of race allows racism to continue to fester and persist. And so that the ultimate goal with the elimination of race would be not conflating race with ethnicity and culture, recognizing how the elimination of race is only speaking to the elimination of racism, the violence of racism. It doesn't diminish, demean, devalue, or eliminate or erase culture or ethnicity, any feelings of pride and heritage, because those things actually aren't racial, it's cultural. It's not the Mm. same thing. And the sooner we can we can recognize that, then the sooner we'll have the progress that we desire. So how like how do you start a conversation about racism without discussing the race portion of it? So could you give me an example of like how that conversation <laughs> would start? One of my strategies is typically to talk about philosophies of race and define that for people. So at the start of this conversation, there are six philosophies. I mentioned naturalism, which is the belief that race is biological, Mm -hmm. even though it's been disproven. Um, Then I mentioned constructionism, which is sort of how many people view gender. That is, is a social construction. It might not be biological, but because of how racism operates, it's real. And then there's uh, skepticism, which is a position I hold, which skeptics tend to argue that race is not biological and it's not a social construction. The thing we identify as being race is actually cultural, cultural, it's ethnic, it's something else. Mm-hmm. And then everyone has one of those positions, even without having the name for it. And then everyone has a philosophical position as to what they think should be done with race. So you can be a reconstructionist, which I mentioned, which is essentially the belief that we we can reconstruct race, i.e. whiteness, blackness, to mean something other than what it means, to have less violence on people, to be more positive. We've been reconstructing since, again, before America was a country. I just want to point that out. And then there's eliminativism, which is my philosophical belief that we should undo race. We should eliminate the concept of race. My reasoning for it is because I recognize racism as creating race. And so there's no way we can reconstruct that. And that's why we've been unsuccessful. So it needs to just go away. And then the last position is conservationism, which conservationists are probably going to be naturalists. They believe that race ideology should be conserved, and maybe they don't believe that it should be or needs to be reconstructed. So those are the six philosophies of race. And so when I start to have conversations with people, I tend to bring in the philosophies to show that 
number one, here's what the philosophies are. Figure out where you find yourself. Most people are going to be constructionist, reconstructionist. Now let's talk about how that hasn't worked for us <laughs> okay. at all. Well, it's worked for us to a certain extent. I mean, we, we're not picking cotton, right? Yeah. But there's the new Jim Crow. There's all kinds of systemic ways in which racism still is absolutely a problem. Mm-hmm. And so when we're able, when you're able to open the door to, to alternative ways of thinking that American society at large doesn't want us to know or have access to, I think that that opens the door for how we can have better conversations about racism. And then the last thing I'll say is my positions of skepticism and eliminativism have also proven to be very helpful in encouraging more productive conversations about racism mm-hmm. and race. Because it, it, if you create a space where you can empower people to remove race from themselves, even if just for a, a workshop, a class, or whatever, right, just for a moment, just imagine that, that, that you are not a racialized person in this society. Now let's talk about racism. Let's talk about how whiteness and blackness have become metaphors for certain things, how whiteness has become a metaphor for being racist and having power or having access to power, even if not having power. Let's talk about how blackness has become a metaphor for being a victim always and forever of systemic racism. Let's talk about how blackness has become a metaphor for not having access to, to power, mm-hmm. not being, uh, not speaking standard English, which is the same as not ha- being educated or being poor. Blackness has literally been written in very racist ways because not all black people are poor and that not all black people are uneducated and so on and so forth. So let's talk about race as a, as a, as how they've become metaphors to mean fill in the blank. And in that way, we're, we're getting somewhere and talking about the problem, which is racism, because you can't solve a problem if you're misidentifying what the problem is. We, we spend so much time in this country trying to solve the symptoms of racism. You know, mm-hmm. if a Karen acts out, we they go viral, they get fired, you know, they're mm-hmm. kind of ostracized. But that's not solving the root cause. That's solving the symptom. Let's so- solve the cause, which is racism creates race. Okay. So let me ask you this. How do you feel about the ban to discuss like some of the history and slavery in the schools? You mean what people are calling critical race theory? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, of course I pay so much attention to, to the discourse. Um, and that is how I've come to, uh, the knowledge that I currently have that I'm trying to share as widely as possible. This thing about, uh, what people are misnaming critical race theory, it's largely controversial because racism creates race. So as soon as you start to try to bring race and racism into a space, people feel like, not all people, but but some people who look all kinds of ways, let's be absolutely clear, like not all white people are against CRT or what they perceive to be CRT, and the people who are speaking out against it look all kinds of different ways, right? The, the idea that 
to teach children about racism, systemic racism, is to teach them how to be racist um, is ironic to me, but it's also indicative of how racism <laughs> creates race. And people recognize people are recognizing that even if they're not, even if they're not able to self reflect and see that for themselves. And the sooner we can actually bring into schools philosophies of race, we teach we teach each other philosophy. Philosophy sounds like highfalutin, you know, ivory tower, but people learn philosophy since the time that they're very young and start to have language, right? Mm-hmm. I think we should be teaching philosophies of race to students and and that the, the philosophies of race would then uh, lead to, again, more generative discussions about racism because instead of parents or students or administrators or whatever identifying the teaching of racism as ostracizing people based on race, it would actually create a space for which okay, we, we are not rec- racialized. That's the problem is, t- is people, all types of people are recognizing themselves as being racialized and then refusing, not seeing a way out of that racialization. So if I'm racialized as white, I'm doing this conversation about racism and race in, in schools as teaching my children to feel guilty, to, to, be, on, to be defensive, um, and if I'm racialized as black, I'm doing this as potentially teaching my children that, that I don't have power and agency. I'm always a victim. I mean, this is the language people are using, right, in, in their outcries. If you're you. able to show how per- we are actually not racialized in the ways that we assume and presume and the ways that we've been taught, then that creates absolutely a more productive way to to have this conversation to teach the history and my hope for the future is that we'll be teaching it as a historical thing as opposed to a thing that we're still combating right now so do you think that that's actually realistic like that 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 is something that would actually happen like i i i hear the theory but i don't really see and i i don't white people who identify as white people being okay with that <laughs> so i don't yeah so and and, so, and if we eliminate the idea that you know power is associated with race or whatever it is which i mean if even if we eliminate it, it doesn't change the fact that white people do have more access maybe we some of us do as well but if you look at our neighborhoods as a whole, and I mean, it, it is a difference. So what is it realistic that people could actually think in this way? Absolutely. Um, I think what's unrealistic is the idea that after countless, what feels like countless centuries of reconstructing race to not mean what it has come to mean and continues to mean, I think that that is unrealistic. Mm. If we are about the life of actually solving racism, again, not with the goal of creating a utopia where nobody's racist, nothing nefarious is happening, but just the statistical majority shifting the tides so that the policies can reflect the, the land 
the the beliefs of its people, right? And and in that way will be against racism or will not be racist, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that is absolutely realistic. And the, the way that white supremacy operates is precisely what was just communicated um, through your question. It's this idea that too many racialized black people believe that that white people won't let go of their power. But when you're able to show those so-called white people that they don't actually have the power they think they have, <laughs> that they are led to believe and are programmed to think in along race lines so that the, the what, 1% of white folks who have the most economic and political power in this country can stay in power. Yeah. And yeah. so that the average white person can continue to think that and operate under the illusion that they have power and, and see themselves as distinctly 100% different from those people with yeah. brown skin down the street, that is that is part of the problem. And that's yeah. why you see it play out in the ways that you do. And as soon as you can take whiteness away from somebody, listen. That's as soon as you can yeah. interrogate whiteness and, and point out the fact that there's no such thing as a pure race, because that's what whiteness is supposed to be, that there, yeah. that there have been no, no relationships mm-hmm. with people with brown skin. As soon as you can do that, that completely disrupts a person's worldview, and it 100% leads them down a different spiritual, emotional, and intellectual path. And I've done it countless times in my classrooms. I've worked with hundreds of people on this, all with very firm beliefs about their blackness, their whiteness, their Asianness, and so on. And every single time I've gotten countless emails, feedback, my evaluations, students talk about how actually liberating this knowledge is for them and how they are forever changed in the way that they view the problem. Dr. Sheena, we need more time, girl. We got to close out the show. We need more time. I want to talk about this further, but we got to close out the show right now. Please let everybody know where they can reach you so that we can um, get, I think we should probably have you back on and continue the conversation. Um, What's your, um, how can people keep in contact with you? Yeah, so they can find us at theoryofracelessness.org. Um, Instagram is Theory of Racelessness. Also, I'm on YouTube, www.youtube.com backslash small letter C backslash Queen She is in Queen Sheena. Find me there. I've got plenty of podcasts and more information. We are definitely going to have you back on because I truly want to continue this conversation. I think it's so important to um, communicate. So guys, make sure you are tuned in to Afternoon Tea Radio every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time and make sure you're downloading us on Afternoon Tea Radio podcast on all your major platforms. It's your favorite girl. Make sure you stay tuned next week for Afternoon Tea Radio. Thanks for listening thank you for listening to afternoon tea radio with your boy karis jordan and your favorite host maria jordan and make sure you tune in every thursday 12 p.m eastern time yeah 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 yeah